should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist on the Michelle Miao Show with everyday conversations on race for everyday people, where we bring people together from different backgrounds to talk about race and bring race to the people. In the studio I have with me today, our producer, Michelle Miao, and also another colleague, Ellie Nagai-Roth. The topic, Ellie Nagai-Rota. Our topic today is going to be Asians in the race convo. So I'm gonna start by having uh, Michelle and even though you know Michelle, and have Michelle and Ellie introduce themselves. So, Michelle, would you just say something about, about your cultural background? Sure, yeah, actually, I mean, it's good because uh, there are times when I do talk about my cultural background, and uh, on Sundays on the show, uh, Tukta and myself, who is my wife, and she's from Thailand, we take some time out from the politics and we start, we do like conversations about our culture, which is, uh, you know, Thai San, the northeast uh, region of Thailand. And, and we, we play Malam music, which is Thai country music. Um, so my parents actually were refugees and they lived in the Thai uh, refugee camp for a couple of years before immigrating here to the United States in the late 70s. Um, so I think, you know, just uh, I think that answers a lot of questions and then we can ask more later. Okay, Ellie. Yeah, hi. Really cool to hear your background, Michelle. Uh, my name's Ellie Nagai-Rota. Um, I grew up in San Francisco, and I, my background is in international peace and conflict resolution. I do restorative justice work and diversity inclusion work. And I identify as multiracial Asian American. Um, I'm Japanese, Chinese, and German American. And on my mom's side, my mom and my grandparents all grew up in the U.S. My great-grandparents migrated from Japan, came through Angel Island. And so I'm fourth-generation Japanese-American on my mom's side. And my dad's side, I'm second-generation German-American. My dad uh, was born and raised in Germany. Um, and so I have a very intentional identity as multiracial Asian-American being racialized as Asian-American. We could talk more about that later. Well, as you know... The issue of race is a hot topic here in the United States and everywhere else, as well it should be. Oftentimes, though, when people hear race, they think black and white. And do you think that there are times when Asians and Asian Americans are left out of the conversation? Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think that we're excluded, um, you know, from parallel experiences of other minority groups or those of color here uh, in the United States. I think 
it's interesting and it's perfect that we have someone like Ellie on the show and then myself whose parents are, are my mom and my dad were first generation. So I'm technically second generation. And the racism that I encountered as a young kid growing up wasn't necessarily what a lot of people, um, you know, talk about, which is racism by uh, white supremacy or white, uh, you know, oppression. Uh, the white, the kind of white supremacy um, racism that I encountered actually were bad practices and racism that were picked up by people of my own color or my own race uh, or other oppressed minorities. Like the first time I actually was told to go back to my country was from a Filipino-American kid. And the first time that I had actually heard the term supremacy came from a Chinese-American kid who said, you should go back to your country because we're the superior race. Um, so to answer your question very quickly, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, we maybe from mainstream media, Asians might be um, silenced or not included in the discussion about racism. But as we talk about it from personal experiences, it's very clear that we are also included in the parallel experiences of racism in the country. What about you, Ellie? What do you have to say? Yeah, definitely. Um I think I think I've definitely experienced uh, times in my life where that's felt true, um, identifying as an Asian American and feeling, quote unquote, left out of the race conversation that's dominated by a black white dynamic. Um, and I also um, I think it's also quite nuanced. Um, I think about this as because I also identify as a person of color and that happened not when I was young, growing up in a really racially diverse environment in San Francisco, although primarily Asian American. Um, that happened for me when I went to college, a predominantly white um, uh, liberal arts, very um, pretty wealthy college, and was labeled as a student of color. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But I've since internalized that label because I get that experience of being perceived that way. Um, but what I've experienced is that in those spaces, the people color spaces, um, sometimes I feel welcome, like that, that I belong there, and I oftentimes feel um, unwelcome, um, that somehow um, I'm, not, I'm not really a person of color. And that also connects with my multiracial identity, which brings another kind of level of complexity into it, uh, because I do have white ancestry. Um, so then always feeling this question of um, where do I fit in that conversation? And as, as someone who's experienced um, racism, um, <laughs> you know, one, wondering how that also fits in. I was just thinking uh, right before we, got, we, we started getting on this conversation about how I was walking in downtown San Francisco of all places. And um, this guy, this African-American guy came up to me and said, oh, uh, I like Jackie Chan too. Ha, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, I was just sort of dumbfounded. I'm like, excuse me? I'm not quite sure how to process what you're saying to me. Um, so, you know, just an assumption of, 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 you know, perceptions of where we belong and, and how that relates to other people who see us. And, yeah, anyway, it's, it's quite an interesting conversation for sure. Well, can, can you share a, a time? You talked about there were times when you felt excluded from the conversation. Can you, can you share? Can you think of any particular time? Yeah, so what I was thinking of is how so often there's this um, hierarchy, racial hierarchy that has, I feel like so many people continue to buy into in terms of like the model minority myth um, and 
and where um, in conversations about activism and particularly uh, anti-black racism, where Asian Americans fit into that, um, when so often those those same dynamics happen in our in our own families. Um, and so I've definitely grappled with where that, where that, where do I fit into a conversation, um, knowing that we're all impacted in different ways by systems of oppression, um, and also knowing that it impacts us differently. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too, Michelle. Yeah, uh, I have <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about this. I mean, you know, first and foremost. Uh, poverty is a crime here in the United States, and you can't separate poverty uh, from racism. And the, you know, it's it, it's obvious if you understand those two things that the group that uh, feels the brunt of, you know, that statement would be African Americans, and then you move on up from other oppressed groups, uh, especially um, what you had just said, Ellie, and and. As far as like oppressions and systems of oppressions and who it impacts and it's people of color. And unfortunately, you know, for a lot of Asian Americans, if you look at it from the financial perspective, if they are financially successful, you tend to then have this idea or this thought that racism doesn't necessarily impact them. And some of that is true if, you know, poverty is a crime and also um, economic inequality and racism are, they go hand in hand, right? When we talk about Asians and racism, especially in mainstream media, in my opinion, it's always white conservatives who use Asians as a dividing wedge between the other groups or, or other oppressed groups here in this country. And when I say that, I mean like things like affirmative action, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which was also brought up, you know, and in Hollywood, um, even in Hollywood, you still you still can't even have right, a leading Asian-American actor playing an Asian character, especially in um, animations or, or, you know, Disney films and things like that. Uh, and it wasn't until something like, uh, or someone like Daniel Day Kim, who walked away from CBS after not being paid, you know, the same amount of money as his white um, counterparts, is that when we, we finally are starting to discuss racism within Asians in the way that it has been discussed by uh, blacks uh, in comparison to whites. And when we start talking about, um, you know, financial inequality, we t start talking about it from economic inequality, it, there, there's the opportunity for us to finally uh, bring ourselves to the table to say we, we have those parallel experiences. You know, let's talk a little bit about some of those differences because oftentimes in the United States and maybe other places too, people will say Asians, 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 as though every Asian person is exactly the same. And of course, no Asian person was born in the United States. Uh, could you talk a little bit about some of the differences amongst Asians, some common misconceptions and things <laughs> that people really need to know? <laughs> a Asians are the, you know, so incredibly diverse. Right. I mean, as a continent, I, even in a country like Thailand, there are so many different dialects and different types of groups and tribal groups. Um, so, yeah, I get what you're saying as far as like clumping Asians together. 
uh, and saying, you know, we all have a very similar characteristic, but no, that's that's so far from the truth. Yeah, I definitely uh, agree with that. Um, I mean, I think like so many terms, Asian as a racial category is so problematic because it's hugely diverse, right? It encompasses so many different um, ethnicities, languages, geographic spaces, immigration histories, at least we're talking about Asian Americans. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of differences even within the, that umbrella term um, as it relates to experiences here. So, yeah, I totally, <laughs> it definitely um, laugh a little bit because there, there's just so much, there's so much diversity within that term. It's almost, you know, it's hard to, you know, we kind of work with it because that's what we have, but there is so much, such, such a big range. Well, are there ever issues between people like, say, somebody who maybe is here for several generations and somebody who just came here? Sorry, it, repeat the question. Is there ever any issues between people who are here for several generations and people who just came here? I mean, I just know, I can tell you, as a Jewish person growing up uh, when I was much younger, there was a big issue between people who had were like German Jews who'd been here for several generations and people who were just everybody else who was coming from Eastern Europe and they were they were looked down on because they didn't speak English mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. or they were considered less intelligent. So I wonder if there are any issues like that. Well, yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> we've said this before here on the show uh, with you and this program and talking about race and digging deeper that, you know, it's, n it's more than just the color of your skin, right? There are systems that are continuously broken and that oppress groups here in this country. And a lot of that also lies in capitalism and the systems that keep people of color in prison systems or incarceration or poverty and no access to the same level of education or opportunities for jobs or promotions. Like all of that stuff matters. And that gets trickled down, in my, in my opinion, through generations. So it used to be this thing when I was growing up, you know, and this is a personal opinion, these are personal experiences, but because my parents had just immigrated here, right, we were kind of the last people to immigrate here compared to the Chinese, to the Filipinos, and, you know, and all, and all the other groups that uh, we were looked upon as, like, so, so lowly or so um, uh, that we didn't, we didn't deserve to be here. And because we were poor or because we were darker, or, or considered, I, I had heard this growing up, you know, that I was a jungle Asian um, and not like, you know, you know uh, not, not white Asian. So like, like the, uh, what I'm trying to say, because I know Oriental is, is, is a racist term, but that was what was used when I was growing up. So as far as like problems of like generations, I think that what happens here as we acclimate and assimilate the, the bad practices of white supremacy, you know, gets ingrained into our everyday lives. And then we in turn become oppressors. Uh, my wife is from Thailand and I have family members who cannot wrap their minds around the fact that I have fallen for someone or fallen in love for someone who lives in a different country. And they see her as like an alien they think that she's a robber or she's a con artist or she's a fraud and it's so weird 
to experience that for my family who were refugees and who immigrated here. You know, it's like that the xenophobia continues and it cycled down. How about you, Ellie? Yeah, super interesting to hear what you're saying, Michelle. Um, I was just thinking about um, experiences that I had in college, and I had a lot of um, friends, international students, friends who were international students, uh, many of whom came from different parts of Asia, and how um, different that experience is um, under the U.S. umbrella or that term of what Asian, what it, what that means and what Asian American means. And... Um, we would do a lot of student organizing around different issues, and it caught me off guard quite a few times that they're politically they were really not on the same in the same realm uh, around um, kind of anti-oppression work, and um, really identified much more, particularly some of the students from Pakistan, um, like identified much more with the white framework, uh, the white dominant framework. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a lot of difference in terms of experience that's really based on, um, you know, how we grew up, where we grew up. Um, and then right as you were talking about kind of different generational experiences. Um, and then there's also, you know, I think <laughs> I was thinking about this as well. I, um, I was on a, so anyway, in, in my in my particularly my college age part of my life, I was doing a lot of really identity searching. It's like, what does this mean about you know being an Asian American and how how does this connect up with my life? And um, I was doing a lot of advocacy and activism around it at that time, and was in this program um, with um, well a Korean a Korean American woman um, that she was a transracial adoptee um, who grew up was adopted by white parents and grew up in the Midwest um, and got burned a couple of times because I made some assumptions about her political leanings and her kind of active, like what I thought was her activism around issues of race and racism and anti-oppression. Um, you know, and we, and often being in a campus that was almost all white, I would, you know, look for other people of color to be like, yeah, right. Can you affirm what I'm saying here? Can you, can you, can you give me an amen? And <laughs> just it was like, no, no, not at all, right? Because that just wasn't her experience. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of, uh, you know, just based on how we grew up, just, just because she has Asian ancestry doesn't necessarily she means that she identifies with that, um, that identity. Thank you so much for sharing that. So, Ellie, we're going to take a break right now. We're going to take a, a commercial break, and we'll be back after the break with Ellie Nagai-Rota and Michelle Miao talking about Asian issues in the race convo. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play, watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook, and when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. 
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist again on the Michelle Meow Show with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. And today in the studio, I have Michelle Meow and I have Ellie Nagai Rota. And today we're talking about Asian issues in the race convo. You made an allusion uh, earlier, I think, to issues of skin color. Amongst, mm -hmm. could, could you say a little bit more about that, Michelle? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for, for Asians, and again, Asians are incredibly di diverse, so I, I can't speak for every Asian group out there. But culturally speaking, there, there are experiences of skin color discrimination even in Asian nations. So... You know, from my own experiences, it, before my parents even immigrated here, and, and, and I think that it has a lot to do with colonialism, right? So, for example, oh, yeah. yeah, French colonialism is, is a, a, a Southeast Asian history um, from countries like Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam. And so the fairer the skin, the more accepting you are, the more beautiful you are. Um, and even shared with you, you know, one of my wife's most popular songs as a country singer is about uh, her working as a car wash girl and she gets darker because of that and, and can't find a husband. Um, and so, you know, to transfer that also over here, I think that what we're missing as far as Asian Americans, uh, voters, or the being politically engaged or being part of the conversation about racism is we've got to be better at acknowledging the fact that we have our own prejudices and, and, and biases uh, about skin color. And we also have to be better at acknowledging the fact that racism had never uh, gone away uh, when, you know, after the civil rights movement, and it starts with the African-American community. So if we can't get behind freedom for every single black person in this country, then we're always going to be those who perpetuate the broken, you know, racial inequality and systems of racism in this country. Nobody is going to be free until all black people are free. Thank you. Um, Ellie? Um, yeah, so over here shaking my head agreeing. Um, uh, thank you for speaking about colonialism because I think that's a big 
a big part of the the piece of the history there, um, current and present, uh, past and present. Um, and, yeah, I was just thinking about my, I, I spent a lot of time um, in the last recent part of my life living in India and about the different regions. Um, I didn't know that. In the north. Yeah, okay. yeah, I used to be the uh, principal of a school in India in the south um, and was, yeah, there's a lot of regional differences in the north and the south um, in terms of skin color and tone. And, of course, you know, like in India and a lot of other Asian countries, um, Japan as well, there's skin whitening creams. Um, and there's definitely this, this desire toward having lighter skin. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it just goes back to what Michelle was saying, right? How, how does – how what – Looking at that globally, like I think that exists, and then also how, what does that mean in the U.S. Um, in terms of how that aligns with racism against black folks? I think absolutely we need to be thinking about that and, and um, bringing that front and center, particularly in our conversations within the Asian American community. Well, I want to ask you a question about two of you. Oh, go ahead. You want to say something? No, I was also going to add, you know, um, take, for example, Elaine Chow right, a Taiwanese immigrant, wife of Mitch McConnell, and in, in this virtue or this characteristic of standing by your man, I mean, I think a lot of women can get behind that, but um, even in, in Asian cultures, if you look at it from the cultural perspective, that is a, would be considered a strong characteristic, but yet she doesn't understand her being complicit in racism in this country by standing, you know, for her man, and she goes on in a, in a, uh, in a an article, you know, when asked about uh, Donald Trump and um, his racist comments or comments about Charlottesville, and she answers back, I stand behind both my men, meaning her husband, Mitch McConnell, and the president, you know, Donald Trump. That's the kind of, of uh, actions in which I would consider spineless. She is one of the most powerful, looked up upon Asian American women and, and an inspiration to a lot of Asians, but those are the missed opportunities that we have. And, that, and being complicit in racism in that way as an Asian American, in, in my opinion, it continues the cycle, uh, it, it, going back to your, your question about generations, because it shows like to other young Asians, this is, this is, a, this is who you should model. And the, the problems of racism doesn't necessarily affect us, especially when you're a rich Asian or an educated Asian or, you know, a third, fourth, fifth generation Asian here in this country. Well, I think that's why it's also important to point that out so people could look at Elaine Chow or, um, like in the 60s, S.I. Hayakawa, who was really kind of a dog, and say, oh, see, they're Asian. Look, they made it. And I think that it's really important for people to understand there is no one Asian monolith. Just because one person is Asian in the cabinet doesn't mean all Asians are in the cabinet or that all Asians will ever be in the cabinet. Uh, I want to ask you both some per a personal question in terms of relating to other, pe other people of color because, of course, we know that just because somebody is a person of color doesn't mean that automatically they're progressive or they speak out against racism. I mean, we see, you know, Trump's David Clark and a couple of other people, lackeys that he has working with him. Uh, what has been, what's, are, personally, what's your personal relationship with other people of color? 
Well, you know, I was just um, saying this to someone yesterday about the fact that I may not be rich in the bank, but uh, I am rich with so many different relationships, and I'm blessed because of that. Uh, uh, you know, j- what I do as a profession, as a talk show host, and I've always, always, always been so curious about human relationships and and why is it that we just can't love each other and love each other for who we are why does why does all these things matter especially about like race so i don't think that uh i'm a good person to answer those questions because i actually or that question the question of what is my relationship with with other people of race because I think that I'm unique in that way. I'm unique. But if I'm asking you personally, forget okay. everybody else. All right. I, I, I know. Don't speak I know for anybody else. Yeah, I, I just know that not everybody gets the opportunity to have this, uh, to have these types of relationships that I have, which are so diverse. Um, but it's a blessing. Like it's such a blessing to be able to talk to everyone and learn from them. And that's my personal perspective: is to learn to shut up. Um, so I, ha- I, I consider myself to be rich with a lot of amazing people from all over as part of my, my world, which then contributes to my show, right? And that's the whole purpose of the show. Uh, but, you know, I'll tell this story. I, I mean, I walked into a, an African-American studies class at San Francisco State, um, and there were two white girls and then myself, you know, who were not black. And the professor was Dr. Laura Head, and, and uh, she, and I heard she was a really hard teacher. This was an ethnic studies cl- um, class. And the first question she asked all of us was, why are you taking this class? And the first girl answered um because i want to and the professor kicked her out the second girl couldn't really answer and she said i'll come back to you and then when she got to me i responded with i think i'm racist and i don't know why i don't know i don't know how or why i came to this this place where i'm at where i don't understand african-american people or i'm i'm told that they're bad people or they're criminals and and i got to take the class um, so if that gives you some insight as to, to, you know, who I am and why it's so important for me to diversify the people in my life, you know, it makes me a better person. Yeah. Ellie. Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, a, broad, a challenging question to answer because it's so broad about what your relationship is with people of color. Uh, um, no, well, not with all people of color, but with, do you, you know, other people of color that might be, do you have other people of color in your life? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, oh, I mean, could you talk a little bit Michelle, about Yeah, similar to Michelle in the sense of, like, um, that is so fundamental to how I live my life is to be living in community and be living in um, uh, ideally a radically diverse community. Um, that's what I, but I'm a community builder at heart, and so that's that's what, what I love. Um, and yet, um, sadly, how easy it is, at least in the U.S., because I lived in other parts of the world, but at least in the U.S., how hard it is to, I feel like you have to be really intentional about building diverse communities and how easy it is for us to um, um, segregate ourselves um, for all kinds of reasons historically. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yes, for me, that's, that's super important. Um, and in, in particular, kind of 
relating to the question, uh, the, what I was talking about earlier about like my college days, and I, I find that I really want to be connected to people, certainly people who have different experiences than I do, but I also find it really affirming to be connected to particularly people of color who may come from different racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, but who may have a shared experience of racism and oppression and a language and a framework to talk about that. That helps me feel, um, it, it feels really important to be able to like, all right, we, we kind of, under, we understand each other and we, we don't have to do the diversity one-on-one conversation. <laughs> um, that, and I, I know I count white allies in that as well, uh, but particularly for folks of color. Um, yeah, so that's, that's really important to me. I want to ask you about Black Lives Matter because I still hear people who will insist that Black Lives Matter is anti-white, it's only pro-black, there's only black people involved. Now, I know, Michelle, you have a relationship with people in, in Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. So what do you say when people say that? When, when people say it's, it's just about black people? Yeah, or right. Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I think that, you no, know. What, what I mean is that if somebody says, because I know when I see Black Lives Matter demonstrations, you see people of all different colors. You see white, black, brown, every, everybody, right? Yeah. So, so, that's, so, so what I mean is, in your experience, because I think it's important for people to hear from other people who are not black, who have been involved and, 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 and in related with people from Black Lives Matter, to understand that it's not just only black people. Right. I, I mean, the founders of Black Lives Matter and, and in several conversations that I've had with the founders have always talked about it not being just about black people, um, but that that's what it is, that black people matter, too. Um, and and so it's a lot of education to break down, you know, these types of conversations that just divide us. That's what mainstream media does, right? That's what uh, uh, lots of people in power want to do is just create divisions or wedges between us so that we actually can't get on the same page. Because that would just mean then that we would be fighting racism at, at a, uh, a much more powerful level than we ever have in this country. But the one thing that I always want, especially Asians, to to keep in mind when we're talking about black lives matter is the fact that you know at the root of racism in this country the root of it are you know the that it, it's black people that we stand on that you know as far as like the shoulders and it, the the country has been founded upon um on their backs and we're here with so many more privileges than black people here in this country. And so standing in solidarity, this word solidarity, you know, I, I think for especially first generation to second generation Asians might be a scary thing because the first thing you when, you when you get here to this country, you're oftentimes told that, you know, those are the enemy or those are the bad people, those are the criminals, those are people who rob you. And if you're like my parents who you know, upon getting here, uh, they were poor, so they lived in neighborhoods or low-income neighborhoods 
they didn't look at crime as if crime happens when you live in a poor neighborhood. They live they they think of it as, you know, crap. I came to this country and I am uh, living with the blacks who are the criminals. They look at it that way. And even my wife in 2017, she's only been here seven months and every day she watches the news or uh, she actually you know, walks around the city and she looks at the homelessness and, and the crisis and everything. And by told by a police officer that she met, she was told by a police officer that the criminals here in this country are black people. So it hasn't gotten any better. So, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, this movement, this, in my opinion, revolution is necessary because it, it hasn't gotten better. Ellie. Um, yeah, complete agreement with Michelle. Um, I mean, I don't know what else I can add to that because I feel like that you've, that's exactly what I believe. Um, that, um, you know, like, you know, having that conversation with folks who, who really insist that when you say Black Lives Matter, um, that somehow that takes away from other people's lives mattering. It just is such a zero-sum way of thinking, um, particularly so like that just to start with. Like why do why do the fact that some people's lives matter mean that other people's lives matter less, right? Okay, so there's that. But then you add in like serious historical systemic oppression, and yes, uh, the reality that in this country uh, many lives do matter more. And so how do we have that conversation? Um, and I think in particular, you know, there, there are, um, I think it's important if we just come back to that, the, the piece of, of like where Asian Americans fit in that conversation, um, use it, you know, that, that's my experience, like using our, our own privilege in that to, um, stand in solidarity, right? Like Michelle was saying, and there's lots of, um, I feel like there's there's a lot of historical figures who have historically, you know, to look to Yuri Kuchiyama, right? Like standing in mm-hmm. solidarity and activism, and um, and so yeah, I think that's a really there are a lot of Asian American examples to look to historically, and I think there are a lot of people currently who I look to um, in terms of really um, changing the discourse and changing that conversation that, like Michelle has said, is so often meant to divide us as opposed to really looking at like what why don't we look at collectively uh dismantling systemic oppression as opposed to kind of dismantling each other and dividing us up and um yeah so anyway completely agree with michelle was saying well thank you so much uh we're going to take a commercial break again this is sima lieberman the inclusionist and when we come back we're going to talk about the perpetual otherness of do you speak English mentality? So uh, we'll be back right after the commercial break. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes 
The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Hi, this is Sima. The Inclusion is back on the Michelle Meow Show with everyday conversations on race for everyday people. And today in the studio, I have our producer, Michelle Meow, and I have Ellie Nagai Rota. The topic today is Asian Asians and Asian Americans in the race convo. I want to talk about the fact that, you know, oftentimes if somebody's a black person, could be a very could be wealthy, they could be a professional, they could be a professor, but if they're out on the street, if they're if they're if they're out on if they're out on the street, they could still be picked up by the police. They're still looked at a certain way. Um, so no matter how high they get in the in the food chain of success, they're still they're, they're still they're still subject. They're still, they're still, they're still subject to um, being picked up on the street, and maybe even killed. And I'm, I'm wondering about that uh, perpetual. It seems like sometimes there's a, a perpetual stereotype of uh, of Asian people as the other, as the foreigner, as the other. And so, so can you say something about that? <laughs> Man, this could be a whole other hour, or uh, I, I don't know. It's like an everyday thing. Like, um, I mean, you know, like no matter how many, you know, you've been here for like, say, somebody's been here for like three hundred years. Yeah. No. I look. My 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 mom definitely experiences uh, it a lot when it comes to what you had just said. The whole "do you speak English" thing. Uh, she's been here for over 30 years, and so she's still got a heavy accent. Um, and people just naturally think that she's not a citizen of the United States. But uh, I'm, I'm going to give just one example, and it's just one example from my life. You know, but people will oftentimes ask my wife, like, oh, so why, why did you fall in love with Michelle? Is it because she's American? Um, so, so there's always this assumption that we're other anyway. Um, it doesn't matter 
you know what it, it matters what you look like because based off of what you look like then comes the stereotypes right but even if we were to look at it from say for example hollywood hollywood's the best example of that like i just said earlier i mean you know asians can't even play asians in hollywood they're still casting white people to play asian people in hollywood scarlett johansson <laughs> so i'm gonna end there and maybe ellie you could do a better job articulating what it's like to be asian every day but man the stereotypes there are, there are so many yeah, I hear you on the Hollywood front. It's so but, true. But yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk about the assumption. <laughs> I'd like you to talk about the assumption among some people that I mean, somebody could be like, say, say they're a white person, and maybe their their parents came here from I don't know Italy, and they're walking down the street, and they see an Asian person whose family has been here maybe for four generations. But there might be a situation where that white person whose family has been here for one generation will then assume that they have more of a right to be here than the Asian person who's been here for four generations. Well, I definitely think that, yeah, I just feel like there's this, there's this idea of the perpetual foreigner, yeah, and um, uh, that plays out in, in the experience of so many Asian folks. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about my own family. Uh, like, as I mentioned, my, my mom and my, my grandparents both were born and grew up in California. My mom um, grew up in the Midwest. Um, so she, they were, they were born in the U.S. For, you know, my grandparents were interned during World War II in concentration camps. Um, and my mom, um, they, they, they get that all the time. They have no accent, right, an American accent, quote-unquote, and no, quote-unquote, foreign accent. And yet they're still getting asked, so do you speak English, you know, just by looking at them? Um, and... Um, but, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a constant of somehow there's an assumption that um, Asia, you know, and even I don't, I actually haven't gotten that question, like, do you speak English? But I have gotten the, like, where are you from? Like, you can't really be from here, from the U.S., because you don't look, quote, unquote, American. Uh, you must be from somewhere else. That's what I'm um, talking so, about. So, yeah, like, it, it's, it's, I feel like it's a very strongly held something like you know in our in our uh, particularly in the u.s this idea that um, asians really don't quite belong <laughs> here um even though there's such a long history of asian american communities here like you know i'm thinking in california right like railroads uh, like being part of such a huge fabric of of the the story of this country um and even how that relates to indigenous communities um so yeah it's it, it, it's persistent that's the most common one is, where are you from? Um, and then when I say, you know, well, I grew up in Stockton. No, 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 where are you from? Uh-huh. Or, where are you really from? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nobody asks me that. Uh, right. Or, or you know, uh, people always use nationality and ethnicity incorrectly. Mm-hmm. So what's your nationality? And it's, mm-hmm. you know, American. No, 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 like, like where are you from? Um, so that those are... I hate that. That's that's always been a question that's been asked of me since I was a kid. And when I think about the concept of the perpetual foreigner, I see. I remember the time. I remember. I think it was what was it in the eighties when Detroit was going down, and people who were being scapegoated the most were the Japanese. The 
being accused of taking people's jobs. And I think about Vincent Chin, who was murdered in Detroit right before his wedding by some auto workers who decided that Vincent Chin must be Japanese and he was taking away their jobs, and they beat him to death. So I think that these things are real, and we need to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do need to talk about it, but I, but I also acknowledge that we should be talking about it differently. And had it not be for movements like Black Lives Matter, we wouldn't be talking about it in this way today. And I believe that because, you know, because of social media, because of these hashtag type things that trend. Uh, before that, the mainstream media was driving the conversation around race. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know we know what it's like when the media drives a conversation about anything in this country. So, so I know we're getting clear near the end of the show. Um, I'm going to ask both of you, Ellie, and I'm going to ask you, Michelle. What is one thing you want people to stop saying or doing? Is whether it could be a stereotype, uh, a a thought, whatever it is, what is one thing that, that you would like to see change? <laughs> one thing. Well, there's a um, lot, but I'm just in the interest of time. I want, I, I want yeah, people to yeah. know, I want people who are listening to this to think, who, who maybe have, might have had some, a stereotypical thought for them to hear you say it and go, oh, yeah, I'm never going to say that again. Oh, I, you, know, I should, you know, that's wrong. Well, um, I mean, this is definitely informed by experience. What do you want people to know? What do you, just, what do you want people to know? Yeah, I was going to say this is definitely informed by my experience um, of, of my multiracial background, um, but certainly the question, what are you, which feels so dehumanizing, um, in addition to what we're, Michelle and I were talking about, you know, where are you really from? Um, and, I, and I honor the curiosity and yet the approach because it happens so often to me just by strangers. I'm like, excuse me, like, can, you know, can we get to know each other before you just dive into this and then make assumptions about where, I, where I'm from and who I am? Um, but I think that would be my desire is, um, you know, being able, certainly being able to have conversations about race, um, but also being, um, being conscious about our own <laughs> biases that come in about where people are from or where they belong or where they don't belong. Uh, yeah, that's what I would say. Michelle. Uh, I, too, have a lot to say. <laughs> well, what I, would I like want for, you to have a lot to for, say. For it would people, be boring if you didn't. Yeah, I would like for us to, you know, not be so dismissive when it comes to racial inequality here in this country. I mean, a great example of being dismissive is arguing over to kneel or not to kneel or to protest the NFL or to, to not. You know, and, and it, it just so happened that I had finished a documentary um, and then they came for us by Abby Ginsburg, who's the documentarian uh, that, you know, has uh, uh, George Takei as an interview, and it's about the internment camps um, and these photos that she used from Dorothea Lang, who photographed what happened during the internment camps. And, you know, we can't be dismissive. We cannot ignore the racial inequalities. We can't ignore what's happening to black people in this country or what has happened, what continues to happen, and these racist and um, uh, unjust you know, systems that keep us oppressed. And the reason why is you know, this, this documentary is so right. And then they came for us. 
and and when they come for us, there's no one else that's going to speak for us, and so we have to continue to speak up. So this is what I would like for people to do. Fighting for black rights, and I know that I've been very vocal about that, um, as a white person, as an Asian person, as a brown person, as a black person, it's it's not just about black rights, as you had mentioned. It's black lives matter too, but but fighting for the freedom of black people is going to get us all to freedom. It is going to get us to equality. It's going to get us to a more equal and just system of being able to live in in harmony, in my opinion, regardless of sexual orientation, gender identity, and or race. If we can't get it together to do that, then we're, we're just going to continue these systems of oppression and we're just going to talk about it on Facebook until Facebook's no longer Facebook. And, and we, we have about five minutes left, yeah. Oh, okay, all right, so yeah, now... I would, I would, I mean, you know, it would be interesting to hear from Ellie as a fourth-generation uh, multi-identity, but especially, you know, Jap- Japanese-American uh, descent to, to, to talk about that idea of, and then they came for us. Um, I, I, every time, like, you know, the anniversary of the internment camps comes around, the United States likes to omit that from our history in a lot of ways. Like, uh-huh. that's not necessarily part of the history channel. Like, it, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't, it's, it's not like a big thing that we talk about, and we should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's still amazing to me how many people don't even know about the history in the U.S. because it's not part of our, our U.S. textbooks often, or it's, a little, it's one of those little sidebar boxes. Um, and yeah, that was definitely, it was hugely informative in my own, my own social justice lens, that that's my family's experience. Um, and it, it generationally has, it continues to impact, I think, psychologically, emotionally, mentally, you know, this idea of like my, my grandparents who grew up in California, in Oakland um, and in Pasadena, um, and had, and their parents had businesses and homes and, and left it all and, and deeply questioning their, their, they identified as, Amer- as Americans. They're no longer, they, they've all passed on now, my grandparents. Um, but, you know, having that sense of like shame, like, wow, we're, we're not American, you know, that, that's, that's where that went culturally for them. Um, and yet amidst that, the spirit of what's been called in Japanese gaman, which is like, it's hard to translate, but it's kind of this idea of resilience and um, uh, living with grace in the midst of deep injustice and adversity. And I feel like that's what I learned from them. Um, in addition, you know, that sense of gaman, um, but also like that sense of social justice, like this shit is, this, this is not good. <laughs> um, and what are we doing? What am I doing going forward? Because those same kinds of systems um, that, uh, you know, allowed um, people to be, you know, American citizens to be put behind bars, um, is, you know, for, for just based on their ethnicity. Um, that kind of stuff keeps happening, right, for, for now in case of Muslim, Muslim Americans. Um, and so, yeah, that's deeply informed my experience and my lens. Um, and I think it's really, really important for us to know that history and to know the ways that particularly in times when there's, you know, war times or times of fear when people um, make these ideas about who the enemy is or who, who needs to be um, targeted as being the other. Um, and we've seen that throughout history, but that, that's still happening. And so that feels really important. It's really cool to hear, Michelle, that you were involved in that project. Um, yeah, I think it's super important. 
it, it, now is the time. It's so scary. Donald Trump is freaking scary. I mean, we should talk about this. It's not scary because he's some intelligent, uh, you know, man or whatever. He's he's a he's psychotic and and uh, ruthless in a lot of ways. Adding North Korea to his new travel ban. Let's let's talk about how that might impact right Americans living here in this country who are of Korean descent. It possibly could. It doesn't even make sense to include North Korea in the travel ban because North Korea doesn't have an immigration policy. North Koreans cannot immigrate. And mm -hmm. and also, you know, the diplomats who come from North Korea would be excluded anyway because of the, that's what the travel uh, ban had said and the handful of academics, scholars and and educators who come for um, conferences and things like that are super heavily vetted. Uh, so, but lots of Americans won't see this. Lots of Americans will see by Donald Trump doing this. He is protecting us from the bad North Koreans, the North Koreans. In my mind, a snapshot of you know uh, a poster went up on how to decide who looks like a, a southern you know a south korean person or a north korean person that that could possibly happen here in this country or we could start rounding up koreans it, it is that's how scary it is and why we actually have to be a part of the race conversation yeah and you know and a lot of people might say oh come on it's just the north koreans oh come on it's just you know it, it, it's it, it, nothing really is going to happen it doesn't happen here but it happened. Yeah. It happened. Yep. <laughs> if it happened once, and there are many people who still justify it. Right. Right. And it happens. And it can happen again. Well, I want to thank both of you for being on this show. This is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist on the Michelle Meow Show with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. Find us on ProgressiveRadio.com. Or you could find me at similieberman.com. Thank you. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. 
and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com.